Let's give our reverent attention to God's holy word. Let's begin by, let's begin by praying. Almighty Father and everlasting God, we thank you for your sacred word. We thank you that in it you revealed to us your plans for your people to make for yourself a people that would be a royal priesthood and a holy nation devoted to you and to your Son and to the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the law of God which you have written on the tablets of stone but now have written on our hearts and that your Son fulfilled the law on our behalf, accepted the consequences of our sin, rose again from the, new, from the dead, and, have, and he has given us new life. Bless our reading of the word tonight. Help us to give our reverent attention to, to what it says and what it commands us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading tonight comes from the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. And that can be found on 1027 in your pew Bibles. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. In our Old Testament reading from Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20, we learned what kind of king the people of Israel were to anoint as their king and have reign over them. Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote down the laws concerning who would be their king. First, he was to be one of their own brothers, their own flesh and blood, not a foreigner. Previously, they had a foreign king over them, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And he did not know the Lord God, he did not know the law of God, and he did not know the people of God. And he oppressed the Israelites through slavery and infanticide. Second, this king was not to send men to Egypt to acquire horses. 
In other words, they were to have nothing to do with Egypt, their former oppressors, no alliances, no trade deals, no diplomacy. Only the Lord God who covenanted with them at Mount Sinai was to be their ally, not Near Eastern superpowers. Third, he was not to acquire many wives, lest his heart turn away. This meant that he was to be married to one, one Israelite woman, not to marry the princesses of other kings. Such woman would introduce idolatry to the king, who in turn would implement it in the kingdom. This was also a violation of the seventh commandment, to have more than one spouse. It's adultery. And if the king engages in adultery, then so would all the Israelites. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. The acquisition of wealth in ancient times was not by fair market, free market values. It was, in, it was the oppression of others through excessive taxation. And it would also cause the king to depend on his wealth instead of in the Lord. Fourth, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Well, sadly, when we read the, the history of the United Kingdom of Israel and the history of the Northern Kingdom of Israel and the history of the Southern Kingdom of Judah, and we read about the kings that governed those kingdoms, Well, we see that they failed to keep the law of God. Seems to be the only thing they got right was that the king of Israel was one of their own brothers, but they failed to keep the other commands. They eventually allied themselves with the local superpowers. They acquired multiple spouses and a great deal of wealth, and they turned away from the Lord. Instead of writing and keeping the law of God, they failed to trust in the Lord and do what He commanded. And in response, God overthrew the kings of Israel and Judah and exiled the people to the empires of Assyria and Babylon. It would seem that all was lost, and this is a very sad story. You know, curtain comes down, credits roll. But there's some good news. Those failed kings, those failed kings pointed to an ultimate king. One who would keep the law of God. One who would do what was commanded in Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20. In his gospel account, Matthew, a former tax collector turned disciple, turned apostle of Jesus of Nazareth, proves that the true King of Israel is Jesus of Nazareth. He is an Israelite, one of their own brothers. King Herod 
King Herod claimed to be the king of the Jews, but he did not have Jewish ancestry. He was an Idumean. He was an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau. Jesus is an Israelite, and he is a descendant of Abraham and David, whom God promised to bring forth a king from their flesh. He was born of the Virgin Mary, a descendant of King David, as prophesied in Isaiah 7.14. The Lord God also promised that the future king of Israel would also be the Son of God. David was promised in 2 Samuel 7.14 that his descendant would also be the Son of God. The virgin birth, his flight into and return from Egypt, and his baptism all testify that Jesus of Nazareth, the descendant of David and Abraham, is the Son of God, and he is the true King of Israel and true Son of God. Because we see that he succeeds where the previous kings of Israel failed. He kept the law. He kept the law on our behalf. And this is evident when our king goes into the wilderness. Three points from tonight's sermon text. First, the humiliated king. The humiliated king. Second, the tempted king, the tempted king. And third, the servant king, the servant king, the humiliated king. After his baptism in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I see one child here, but all of us are really, let's be honest, young at heart. So, so, We've read many stories about kings and queens and princes and princesses with our, with our parents and grandparents. And do we find kings in the wilderness? No, we, we, you don't find a king in the wilderness. You find them in, in a palace or a castle or the capital city of a kingdom. But Jesus would not be going to Jerusalem. He would not be going there immediately after his baptism to hold court in the city of David. Instead, the Holy Spirit led him into the desert, just like the Israelites after their baptism in the Red Sea, just like his ancestor, King David, who fled into the wilderness to evade King Saul. Jesus, like his people and his ancestors before him, goes into the wilderness to be alone with the Father and the Spirit. And while he was there, our Lord fasted 40 days and 40 nights. This 40-day and 40-night time of fasting alludes to Moses and Elijah. Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights with the Lord on Mount Sinai. And during that time, he fasted. And he, then he received the Ten Commandments on stone tablets. Elijah, having taken food and drink, is commanded by the Lord to meet him at Mount Horeb. And the journey to Mount Horeb was 40 days and 40 nights. The, me the meetings of Elijah and Moses with the Lord on the mountain 
pointed to Jesus' coming into the wilderness. Likewise, were the sojourns of the Israelites and David in the wilderness. These all foreshadowed the true King of Israel, the true Israel, the Son of David, the Lord Jesus, coming into the wilderness, who would succeed where others failed. Scottish Bible commentator David Dixon commented that Jesus revealed His divine nature in the wilderness. He revealed it by upholding his human nature. And we see this in that he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. However, in so doing, he did not abolish the verity of his human nature. Rather, he supported his human nature. But then he permitted it to be subjected to the same common human and sinless infirmities. Therefore, having so miraculously sustained himself so long a time, he afterwards was hungry. We will see this happen again in the earthly ministry of our Lord. His divine nature supported his human nature during his arrest and trial and torture and crucifixion. And then, near the very end of the ordeal, He requested a drink, and it was given to him, and then he died. But this this was for our benefit. By subjecting himself to the same infirmities, common and sinless infirmities, Jesus identified himself with us, his people. So many kings are born with silver spoons in their mouths, all that wealth and power at their disposal, Not so with our king. Our king was born in a manger. He identified with our poverty. Now he identifies with our physical infirmities. He is blasted by the heat of the day, the cold of the night, and hunger and thirst. In Hebrews 5, 7, the author of it exclaimed, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In suffering in the wilderness, Jesus, the Son of God, our King, identifies with our humanity. He knows how we feel. It was also during this time of humiliation, He is then tempted by the devil, which leads to my second point, the tempted King the tempted king. After 40 days and 40 nights, the devil comes and does exactly what he did with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were free to eat from every tree, the fruit of every tree in the garden, except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was forbidden. Should they eat of the fruit of that tree, they will surely die. Satan deceived Eve, saying, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The wilderness wilderness reminds us of the Garden of Eden, except it's the exact opposite of that lush garden. It's an empty and desolate place, a lush place 
degraded to a desert. Nothing there but sun-baked stones that resembled loaves of bread. Satan sees our Lord weak from hunger and says, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Daniel Doriani notes that temptation offers something intrinsically good, whether it be food, wealth, security, authority, or knowledge, and perverts it. When we were young, we knew that cookies were good. Cookies were great. But when you're hungry and dinner will be ready soon, our parents forbade us from eating cookies. Well, now, why is that? That seems unfair. We were hungry. Well, wrong place and wrong time to eat a cookie. After dinner, we could have as many as we wanted for dessert. But to eat one before dinner would spoil our appetites. So it is with our Lord. The Father permits His Son to eat and drink. He also permits him to turn five loaves and two fish into multiple loaves and fishes. But to turn the stones into loaves of bread, well, that's during the wrong time and the wrong place. Jesus is tempted to use his divine power and royal prerogative to feed himself. But to do so would make him like all the other kings of this earth. Many a king or politician will throw feasts with rich foods and fine wines and then make the taxpayers pay the bill. But not so with our king. In this moment of temptation, Jesus shows himself to be the true king of Israel. And he does it by quoting the book of Deuteronomy, the very book the king of Israel was to copy, learn, and obey. But it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, Moses recounts the Israelites' journey in the wilderness and how they always murmured and complained that there was no food to eat and how they longed to return to Egypt to eat meat and cucumbers and onions and garlic. So the Lord fed them with manna, a mysterious substance that nourished them for 40 years. Its very name is a, it's actually not even a word, it's actually a, a sentence. A, it's a question. Mah, what? Nah, it. What is it? And then when they crossed the Jordan River and entered the promised land, the manna stopped. Moses teaches there was a greater reason why God fed them manna. The point of being fed manna from heaven was that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Well, there was plenty of food in Egypt, but there was no freedom. There was only a wicked tyrant, the Pharaoh of Egypt, who enslaved them and curbed their population by drowning their sons in the Nile River. Oh, they remembered the good things. They remembered the good food. But they forgot the evil king and his actions. The manna from heaven was to teach them that they were under a new king, 
the Lord God, and under Him they were free, freed from evil. But they sinned against the Lord by longing for the food of Egypt, and this sinful behavior continued throughout their history. They became like the other nations with their idols, their wealth and power. And the Lord God disciplined them for feeding off the moldy bread of the world and ignoring His voice. But Jesus, thankfully, will turn all of this around. The second Adam, the last Adam, will refuse to give in to temptation. The new Israel will fast before God instead of feast in the wilderness. Thus He proves that He is the true King of Israel, one who knows God and obeys the law of God instead of giving in to temptation, the temptation to turn stones into loaves of bread. Thwarted, Satan takes him out of the wilderness and to the highest point of the temple. And from there, they could look down 4,000 feet to the Kidron Valley. The historian Josephus wrote 30 years later after this incident that if one looked from the pinnacle of the temple and down into the Kidron Valley, you would get dizzy. It would be suicide for a mortal human to jump from the pinnacle of the temple and land in the valley below. But according to Satan, that would not be a problem for the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot on a stone. Satan can quote Scripture too. He quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 to 12. Once again, Jesus is tempted to do something out of self-interest. But this time, Satan buttresses his temptation with Scripture. But he's taking Psalm 91 out of context. He makes the text say that Jesus could presume, presume upon God the Father to save him from a reckless act. But Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, within the proper context of the whole psalm, it teaches that God is with His people during times of trial as they trust and obey Him. He will deliver them from evil or even cause them to triumph over evil. But they must trust and obey Him. And this is confirmed in Psalm 91, Verse 13, which we sang earlier, You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. The lion and the serpent. The two animals employed in this parallelism are symbols for Satan. The one who appeared in the Garden of Eden as a serpent. The one whom the Apostle Peter warns the church prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But Jesus, our King, knows the Scriptures better than Satan. And although He does not quote Psalm 91, 13, He will fulfill it. In Genesis 3, 16, the Lord God told Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus responds, 
Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord God to the test. Another quote from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6.16 In this text, Moses commands the people to conquer the promised land God's way, not their way. They were not to presume that their ways would be endorsed by God. To do it their way would be presumptuous. It also meant that they would not be trusting in the Lord. Deuteronomy 6.16, Moses wrote, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes which He commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord has promised. At Massa, the Israelites tested the Lord by complaining that there was no water to drink. So they quarreled with Moses, who replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? God heard this quarreling and commanded Moses to strike a rock and water flowed forth. God blessed his people with water to drink, water for their livestock. But the area was named Massa, which means testing. There they tested the Lord God and his servant Moses. They presumed that they were led out of Egypt only to die in the wilderness. This was a presumption based on unbelief. Moses warned in Deuteronomy 6.16 not to test the Lord by presumption based on unbelief, but also on belief too. Belief that their way is God's way to conquer the promised land. No, no, no. It's not going to be your way and God blesses it. It's going to be God's way, not your way. That's what Moses says. Jesus, Satan wants Jesus to jump off the pinnacle and trust God in a presumptuous way. Jump and the angels will rescue you. But God the Father will only rescue His Son if His Son is obedient and the Father delivered the Son, but not in the manner that Satan expected. Not in the manner we would expect. He was, delivered through his, he was delivered through His death upon the cross, His burial. And then on the third day, He rose from the dead. If He had cast Himself off the pinnacle and into the valley, the Father would have saved Him with His angels. But the Father would be displeased with the Son. For He, had, he would have sinned, and, and then He would be unable to save us. Therefore, Jesus refused Satan's temptation to jump off the pinnacle and into the valley. He would obey the law of God as written in Deuteronomy and fulfill it with His obedience. Which leads to my final point. The servant king servant king. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these 
I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. It was very common in ancient times for a greater king to subdue smaller kings and instead of destroying them, make them vassals. The big king would draw up this treaty, a covenant, and in that covenant there would be blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Smaller kings wanting to retain their lives and their kingdom would agree to this arrangement and offer their lives, their armies, their lands, and wealth to the king of the superpower. And when they obeyed, they were blessed. And when they disobeyed, they were punished. These arrangements were all modeled after the covenant which the Lord God imposed upon his people. The Lord God called Abraham and made him the father of many nations. Then Abraham's descendants became his people. He delivered them from Egypt and then gave them a covenant. He would be their king and they would be his vassals. And there would be blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Satan, well aware of covenantal arrangements, attempts to impose this upon Jesus. All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. This is so reminiscent of what Satan told Eve in the garden. Instead of obeying God and refraining from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she obeys Satan. And the promise that her and Adam would be like God, knowing good and evil. But upon eating the forbidden fruit, they broke covenant with God and were driven out of the Garden of Eden and out of fellowship with Him, placing themselves and all of humanity under the domain of sin, Satan, and death. This temptation also echoes Israel's conquest of the promised land. They were to defeat the Amorites thoroughly. But instead of doing as God commanded and driving them out of the land, they peacefully coexisted with their enemies, allied with themselves with them, even adopted their gods, hoping that they would gain security with their neighbors and prosperity from the pagan gods. Instead of gaining the promised land, God overthrew the the kingdoms of Israel and Judah and exiled their kings and the people to Assyria and Babylon. But Jesus, the second Adam, the true Israel, the son of David and the son of God, the true king of Israel, will not make a covenant with Satan. For the final time, he quotes Deuteronomy, In so doing, he defends himself, his people, and his kingdom. The Apostle Paul taught in Ephesians 6.17 that the Word of God, the Bible, is the sword of the Spirit. And Jesus wields it against Satan. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. A final quote from Deuteronomy 6.13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. And this verse is then followed by a command, forbidding the worship of other idols. Had Jesus worshipped Satan in exchange for all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, 
he would have put himself under a covenant with an idol. But Jesus was already in a covenant. He was in a covenant with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, the pactum salutis, the covenant of salvation. Together, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit covenanted together to redeem from sinful humanity a people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God the Father decreed this covenant in eternity. God the Son accomplished it at the appointed time with His crucifixion, death, and resurrection. And the Spirit applies this covenant of salvation to us when we hear the gospel proclaimed to us and we believe in Jesus Christ and His finished work. Had Jesus entered into covenant with Satan, the pactum salutis would have been broken and there would be no hope for us. We would still be in our sins under the domain of sin, Satan, and death and under the wrath of God. But Jesus does not, He does not break covenant with His Father and with the Holy Spirit. He dismisses Satan as fully God and as fully man obeys the law of God as it is written in Deuteronomy. And his obedience is for our benefit. He obeys the law of God on our behalf. And along with his obedience to the law of God, he accepts the consequences for our sins, the sentence of death. Jesus, the suffering servant king at the cross, died for our sins and was buried but on the third day He rose from the dead. Our sins have been forgiven, and we are now in a right relationship with God through His righteous Son, the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2, 5-11, the Apostle Paul proclaims this concerning our suffering servant King. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the Son of God, already had all the kingdoms and all their glory. He created them with the Father, and he governed them from the heavens. And yet, unlike the kings of this world who govern and hold on to their kingdoms with an iron fist, He gave them all up for us. He descended from heaven, took on humanity and the Virgin Mary, and became like one of us, like us in all things except sin. And then in the form of a servant, He died on the cross for our sins. But then, in His resurrection, He gained all the kingdoms of the world. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, our King, the servant King, gains all the kingdoms not by worshiping Satan, not by a presumptuous action and not by self-interest. He had them all at the beginning. But he gained them all by obeying the law of God 
suffering the consequences of sin and rising from the dead. And he did it all for us, for us, the people of God. Well then, how shall we respond to our king, our humiliated, tempted servant king? Let us believe in him, trust in him, and obey him. For he identified with our sufferings, obeyed the law of God, and suffered the consequences for our sins at the cross. But now the angels minister to him in heaven. Our suffering servant king came forth from the wilderness and is now our exalted king. Let us also imitate his resistance of the devil by believing God and obeying his word. Let us bow down, worship him, and confess him as our Lord and Savior. Let us pray. Almighty God and everlasting Father, we thank you for your holy and sacred word. We thank you that your Son did not give in to temptation to sin, but remained steadfast to the law of God, as it is written in Deuteronomy, accepted the consequences of sin at the cross, died for us and rose from the dead. Lord Jesus Christ, we rejoice that you were raised from the dead, and by the power of the Holy Spirit you have applied to us the redemption purchased by you through the faithful preaching of the word. By your power, Holy Spirit, convict us of our sins, lead us to Christ in his finished work, and help us to repent of our sins and obey our King. We pray this in his name. Amen.